Book Three, Part Two of A Confederate Girl's Diary. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Confederate Girl's Diary by Sarah Morgan Dawson. Book Three, Part Two, August Ninth to August Thirteenth, eighteen sixty-two. August Ninth. To our great surprise, Charlie came in this morning from the other side. He was in the battle, and General Carter, and dozens of others that we did not think of. See the mountain reduced to a molehill. He says, though the fight was desperate, we lost only eighty-five killed and less than a hundred and fifty wounded, and we had only twenty-five hundred against the Yankees' four thousand five hundred. There is no truth in our having held the garrison even for a moment, though we drove them down to the river in a panic. The majority ran like fine fellows, but a main regiment fought like devils. He says Will and Thompson Bird set fire to the Yankee camp with the greatest alacrity, as though it were rare fun. General Williams was killed as he passed Piper's by a shot from a window supposed to have been fired by a citizen. Someone from town told him that the Federals were breaking in the houses, destroying the furniture, and tearing the clothes of the women and children in shreds like maniacs. Oh, my home! I wonder if they have entered ours. What a jolly time they would have had over all the letters I left in my desk. Butler has ordered them to burn Baton Rouge if forced to evacuate it. Looks as though he was not so sure of holding it. Miss Turner told Miriam that her mother attempted to enter town after the fight to save some things when the gallant Colonel Dudley put a pistol to her head, called her an old she-devil, and told her he would blow her d-brains out if she moved a step, that anyhow none but we d-women had put the men up to fighting, and we were the ones who were to blame for the fuss. There is no name he did not call us. August 10th, Sunday. Is this really Sunday? Never felt less pious or less seriously disposed. Listen to my story, and though I will, of course, fall far short of the actual terror that reigned, yet it will show it in a lukewarm light that can at least recall the excitement to me. To begin, then, last evening, about six o'clock, as we sat reading, sewing, and making lint in the parlour, we heard a tremendous shell whizzing past, which those who watched said passed not five feet above the house. Of course there was a slight stir among the unsophisticated, though we who had passed through bombardments, sieges, and alarms of all kinds coolly remarked, a shell, and kept quiet. The latter class was not very numerous. It was from one of the three Yankee boats that lay in the river close by, the Essex and two gunboats, which were sweeping teams, provisions, and negroes from all the plantations they stopped at from Baton Rouge up. The negroes, it is stated, are to be armed against us as in town, where all those who manned the cannon on Tuesday were for the most part killed, and served them right. Another shell was fired at a carriage containing Mrs. Durald and several children, under pretense of discovering if she was a gorilla, doubtless. Fortunately, she was not hurt, however. 
By the time the little émeute had subsided, determined to have a frolic, Miss Walters, Ginny, and I got on our horses and rode off down the Arkansas Lane to have a gallop and a peep at the gunboats from the levee. But Mother's entreaties prevented us from going that near, as she cried that it was well known they fired at every horse or vehicle they saw in the road, seeing a thousand gorillas in every puff of dust, and we were sure to be killed, murdered, and all sorts of bloody deaths awaited us. So to satisfy her we took the road about a mile from the river, in full view, however. We had not gone very far before we met a Mr. Watson, a plain farmer of the neighborhood, who begged us to go back. "'You'll be fired on, ladies, sure. You don't know the danger. Take my advice and go home as quick as possible before they shell you. They shot buggies and carriages, and of course they won't mind horses with women. Please go home.' But Ginny, who had taken a fancy to go on, acted as spokeswoman, and determined to go on in spite of his advice. So, nothing loath to follow her example, we thanked him and rode on. Another met us, looked doubtful, said it was not so dangerous if the Yankees did not see the dust, but if they did we would be pretty apt to see a shell soon after. Here was frolic. So we rode on some mile or two beyond, but failing to see anything startling, turned back again. About two miles from here we met Mr. Watson coming at full speed. The ladies, he said, had sent him after us in all haste. There was a report that the whole coast was to be shelled. A lady had passed, flying with her children. The carriage was ordered out. They were only waiting for us to run too. We did not believe a word of it, and were indignant at their credulity, as well as determined to persuade them to remain where they were if possible. When told their plan was to run to the house formerly used as a guerrilla camp, we laughed heartily. Suppose the Yankees fired a shell into it to discover its inhabitants. The idea of choosing a spot so well known! And what fun in running to a miserable hole when we might sleep comfortably here! I am afraid rebellion was in the air. Indeed, an impudent little negro who threw open the gate for us interrupted Ginny in the midst of a tirade with a sly, Here's the beginning of a little fuss. We found them all crazy with fear. I did not say much. I was too provoked to trust myself to argue with so many frightened women. I only said I saw no necessity. Ginny resisted, but finally succumbed. Mr. Watson, whom we had enlisted on our side also, said it was by no means necessary, but if we were determined we might go to his house about four miles away and stay there. It was very small, but we were welcome. We had in the meantime thrown off our riding skirts and stood just in our plain dresses, though the others were freshly dressed for an exodus. Before the men left the carriage came, though by that time we had drawn half the party on our side. We said we would take supper and decide after, so he went off. In a few moments a rocket went up from one of the boats, which attracted our attention. Five minutes after we saw a flash directly before us. See it? Lightning, I expect, said Philly. The others all agreed, but I kept quiet, knowing that some at least knew what it was as well as I, and determined not to give the alarm, for I was beginning to feel foolish. 
Before half a minute more came a tearing, hissing sound, a skyrocket whose music I had heard before. Instantly I remembered my running bag and flew upstairs to get it, escaping just in time from the scene which followed on the gallery which was afterwards most humorously described to me. But I was out of hearing of the screams of each, and yet I must have heard them, neither saw Miss Walters tumble against the wall, nor mother turn over her chair, nor the general melee that followed in which Mrs. Walters, trying to scale the carriage, was pulled out by Uncle Will, who shouted to his plunging horses first, then to the other unreasoning creatures, "'Woe there! Taint safe! Take to the fields! Take to the woods! Run to the sugar-house! Take to your heels!' in a frenzy of excitement. I escaped all that, and was putting on my hoops and hastily catching up any article that presented itself to me in my speed, when the shell burst over the roof and went rolling down on the gallery according to the account of those then below. Two went far over the house out of sight. All three were seen by Mr. Watson, who came galloping up in a few moments, crying, "'Ladies, for God's sake, leave the house!' Then I heard Mother calling, "'Sarah, you will be killed! Leave your clothes and run!' and a hundred ejaculations that came too fast for me to answer except by an occasional, "'Coming, if you will send me a candle!' Candle was the same as though I had demanded a hand-grenade, in my mother's opinion, for she was sure it would be the signal for a bombardment of my exposed room. So I tossed down my bundle, swept combs and hairpins into my bosom, all points up, and ravished a candle from someone. How quickly I got on then! I saved the most useless of articles with the greatest zeal, and probably left the most serviceable ones. One single dress did my running-bag contain, a white linen cambric with a tiny pink flower, the one I wore when I told Hal good-bye for the last time. The others I left. When I got down with my knapsack, Mother, Philly, and Mrs. Walters were at Randallson's Landing, August 11th. I don't mean those ladies were, but that I am at present. I'll account for it after I have disposed of the stampede. Imagine no interruption, and continue. In the carriage, urging Uncle Will to hurry on, and I had hardly time to thrust my sack under their feet before they were off. Lily and Miss Walters were already in the buggy, leaving Jinny and me to follow on horseback. I ran up after my riding-skirt, which I was surprised to find behind a trunk, and rolled up in it was my running-bag with all my treasures. I was very much provoked at my carelessness. Indeed, I cannot imagine how it got there, for it was the first thing I thought of. When I got back there was no one to be seen except Jinny and two negroes who held our horses, and who disappeared the instant we were mounted. With the exception of two women who were running to the woods, we were the only ones on the lot, until Mr. Watson galloped up to urge us on. Again I had to notice this peculiarity about women, that the married ones were invariably the first to fly in time of danger, and always leave the young ones to take care of themselves. Here were our three matrons, prophesying that the house would be burnt, the Yankees upon us, and all murdered in ten minutes, flying down the gorilla lane, and leaving us to encounter the horrors they foretold alone." 
It was a splendid gallop in the bright moonlight over the fields, only it was made uncomfortable by the jerking of my running-bag, until I happily thought of turning it before. A hard ride of four miles in about twenty minutes brought us to the house of the man who so kindly offered his hospitality. It was a little hut, about as large as our parlor, and already crowded to overflowing, as he was entertaining three families from Baton Rouge. Can't imagine where he put them, either. But it seems to me the poorer the man and the smaller the house, the greater the hospitality you meet with. There were so many of us that there was not room on the balcony to turn. The man wanted to prepare supper, but we declined, as Philly had sent back for ours which we had missed. I saw another instance of the pleasure the vulgar take in the horrible. A Mr. Hill, speaking of Dr. Nolan, told Philly he had no doubt he had been sent to New Orleans on the Whiteman that had carried General Williams's body, and that every soul had gone down on her. Fortunately, just then the overseer brought a letter from him, saying he had gone on another boat, or the man's relish of the distressing might have been gratified. It was so crowded there that we soon suggested going a short distance beyond to Mr. Lobdell's and staying there for the night, as all strenuously objected to our returning home, as there was danger from prowling Yankees. So we mounted again, and after a short ride we reached the house, where all were evidently asleep. But necessity knows no rules, and the driver soon aroused an old gentleman who came out and invited us in. A middle-aged lady met us, and made us perfectly at home by leaving us to take care of ourselves. Most people would have thought it indifference, but I knew it was manque de savoir-faire merely, and preferred doing as I pleased. If she had been officious, I would have been embarrassed. So we walked in the moonlight, Jinny and I, while the rest sat in the shade, and all discussed the fun of the evening, those who had been most alarmed laughing loudest. The old gentleman insisted that we girls had been the cause of it all, that our white bodies, I wore a Russian shirt, and black skirts could easily have caused us to be mistaken for men that at all events three or four people on horseback would be a sufficient pretext for firing a shell or two. In short, young ladies, he said, there is no doubt in my mind you were mistaken for gorillas, and that they only wanted to give you time to reach the woods, where they heard they have a camp, before shooting at you. In short, take my advice and never mount a horse again when there is a Yankee in sight." We were highly gratified at being mistaken for them, and pretended to believe it was true. I hardly think he was right, though. It is too preposterous. Pourtant, Sunday morning the Yankees told a negro they did not mean to touch the house, but were shooting at some guerrillas at a camp just beyond. We know the last guerrilla left the parish five days ago. Our host insisted on giving us supper, though Philly represented that ours was on the road, and by eleven o'clock, tired alike of moonlight and fasting, we gladly accepted, and rapidly made the preserves and batter-cakes fly. Ours was a garret-room, well furnished, abounding in odd closets and corners, with curious dormer windows that were reached by long little corridors. I should have slept well, but I lay awake all night. 
Mother and I occupied a narrow single bed with a bar of the thickest, heaviest material imaginable. Suffocation awaited me inside, gnats and mosquitoes outside. In order to be strictly impartial, I lay awake to divide my time equally between the two attractions, and I think I succeeded pretty well. So I spent the night on the extreme edge of the bed, never turning over, but fanning mother constantly. I was not sorry when daybreak appeared, but dressed and ascended the observatory to get a breath of air. Below me I beheld four wagons loaded with the young Mrs. Lobdell's baggage. The Yankees had visited them in the evening, swept off everything they could lay their hands on, and with a sick child she was obliged to leave her house in the night and fly to her father-in-law. I wondered at their allowing her four wagons of trunks and bundles. It was very kind. If I were a Federal I think it would kill me to hear the whisper of, Hide the silver, wherever I came. Their having frequently relieved families of such trifles, along with the Negroes, teams, etc., has put others on their guard now. As I sat in the parlor in the early morning, Mrs. Walters, en blouse volante, and all échevelée, came in to tell me of Mr. Lobdell's misfortunes. They took his Negroes, right hand up, his teams, left hand up, his preserves, both hands clutching her hair, they swept off everything except four old women who could not walk. They told him if he didn't come report himself, they'd come fetch him in three days. They beggared him, both eyes rolling like a ship in a storm. I could not help laughing. Mr. Bird sat on the gallery and had been served in the same way, with the addition of a pair of handcuffs for a little while. It was not a laughing matter, but the old lady made it comical by her gestures. When we suggested returning, there was another difficulty. All said it was madness, that the Yankees would sack the house and burn it over our heads. We would be insulted, etc. I said no one yet had ever said an impudent thing to me, and Yankees certainly would not attempt it, but the old gentleman told me I did not know what I was talking about. So I hushed, but determined to return. Jinny and I sat an hour on horseback waiting for the others to settle what they would do, and after having half-roasted ourselves in the sun they finally agreed to go too, and we set off in a gallop which we never broke until we reached the house, which to our great delight we found standing and not infested with Yankees. Linwood, August 12th. Another resting place, out of reach of shells for the first time since last April. For how long, I wonder? For wherever we go we bring shells and Yankees. Would not be surprised at a visit from them out here now. Let me take up the thread of that never-ending story and account for my present position. It all seems tame now, but it was very exciting at the time. As soon as I threw down bonnet and gloves, I commenced writing, but before I had halfway finished, Mother, who had been holding a consultation downstairs, ran up to say the overseer had advised us all to leave, as the place was not safe, and that I must pack up instantly, as, unless we got off before the Essex came up, it would be impossible to leave at all. All was commotion. Everyone flew to pack up. 
Philly determined to go to her friends at Grosse Tete and insisted on carrying us off with her. But I determined to reach Miriam and Lily, if possible, rather than put the Federal Army between us. All en déshabillé, I commenced to pack our trunk, but had scarcely put an article in when they cried the Essex was rounding the point, and our last opportunity passing away. Then I flew, and by the time the boat got opposite to us the trunk was locked and I sat on it, completely dressed, waiting for the wagon. We had then to wait for the boat to get out of sight to avoid a broadside, so it was half-past ten before we set off, fortified by several glasses of buttermilk apiece. All went in the carriage except Ginny, Lily Nolan, and me, and we perched on the baggage in the wagon. Such stifling heat! The wagon jarred dreadfully, and seated at the extreme end on a wooden trunk traversed by narrow slats, Ginny and I were jolted until we lost our breath all down the Arkansas Lane, when we changed for the front part. I shall never forget the heat of that day. Four miles beyond, the carriage stopped at some house, and still determined to get over the river, I stepped into the little cart that held our trunks, drove up to the side of it, and insisted on Mother's getting in rather than going the other way with Philly. I had a slight discussion and overcame Mother's reluctance to Philly's objections with some difficulty, but finally prevailed on the former to get into the cart and jolted off amid a shower of reproaches, regrets, and good-byes. I knew I was right, though, and the idea reconciled me to the heat, dust, jarring, and gunboat that was coming up behind us. Six miles more brought us to Mr. Kane's, where we arrived at two o'clock, tired, dirty, and almost unrecognizable. We were received with the greatest cordiality in spite of that. Mother knew both him and his wife, but though I had never seen either, the latter kissed me as affectionately as though we had known each other. It was impossible to cross when the gunboat was in sight, so they made us stay with them until the next morning. A bath and clean clothes soon made me quite presentable, and I really enjoyed the kindness we met with, in spite of a tearing headache, and a distended feeling about the eyes, as though I never meant to close them again, the consequence of my vigil, I presume. Oh, those dear, kind people! I shall not soon forget them. Mr. Kane told Mother he believed he would keep me, at all events he would make an exchange and give her his only son in my place. I told him I was willing, as Mother thought much more of her sons than of her daughters. I forgot to say that we met General Allen's partner a mile or two from Dr. Nolan's, who told us it was a wise move, that he had intended recommending it. All he owned had been carried off, his plantation stripped. He said he had no doubt that all the coast would be ravaged, and they had promised to burn his and many other houses, and Dr. Nolan's, though it might possibly be spared in consideration of his being a prisoner and his daughter being unprotected, would most probably suffer with the rest. But even if spared it was no place for women. He offered to take charge of us all and send the furniture into the interior before the Yankees should land, which Philly gladly accepted. 
What a splendid rest I had at Mrs. Kane's! I was not conscious of being alive until I awaked abruptly in the early morning with a confused sense of having dreamed something very pleasant. Mr. Kane accompanied us to the ferry some miles above, riding by the buggy, and leaving us under care of Mr. Randelson, after seeing us in the large flat, took his leave. After an hour spent at the hotel after landing on this side, we procured a conveyance and came on to Mr. Elder's, where we astonished Lily by our unexpected appearance very much. Miriam had gone over to spend the day with her, so we were all together and talked over our adventures with the greatest glee. After dinner Miriam and I came over here to see them all, leaving the others to follow later. I was very glad to see Helen Carter once more. If I was not, I hope I may live in Yankee land, and I can't invoke a more dreadful punishment than that. Well, here we are, and heaven only knows our next move, but we must settle on some spot which seems impossible in the present state of affairs when no lodgings are to be found. I feel like a homeless beggar. Will Pinckney told them here that he doubted if our house were still standing, as the fight occurred just back of it and every volley directed towards it. He says he thought of it every time the cannon was fired, knowing where the shot would go. August 13th. I am in despair. Miss Jones, who has just made her escape from town, brings a most dreadful account. She, with seventy-five others, took refuge at Dr. Enders's, more than a mile and a half below town, at Hall's. It was there we sent the two trunks containing father's papers and our clothing and silver. Hearing that guerrillas had been there, the Yankees went down, shelled the house in the night, turning all those women and children out, who barely escaped with their clothing, and let the soldiers loose on it. They destroyed everything they could lay their hands on, if it could not be carried off, broke open armoires, trunks, sacked the house, and left it one scene of devastation and ruin. They even stole Miss Jones's braid. She got here with nothing but the clothes she wore. This is a dreadful blow to me. Yesterday I thought myself beggared when I heard that our house was probably burnt, remembering all the clothing, books, furniture, etc. that it contained. But I consoled myself with the recollection of a large trunk packed in the most scientific style, containing quantities of nightgowns, skirts, chemises, dresses, cloaks, in short our very best, which was in safety. Winter had no terrors when I thought of the nice warm clothes. I only wished I had a few of the organdy dresses I had packed up before wearing. And now it is all gone, silver, father's law papers, without which we are beggars, and clothing, nothing left. I could stand that, but as each little article of Harry's came up before me, I had put many in the trunk, I lost heart. They may clothe their negro women with my clothes, since they only steal for them, but to take things so sacred to me. Oh, my God, teach me to forgive them. Poor Miss Jones. They went into her clothes bag and took out articles which were certainly of no service to them, for mere deviltry. 
There are so many sufferers in this case that it makes it still worse. The plantation just below was served in the same way, whole families fired into before they knew of the intention of the Yankees. Was it not fine sport? I have always been an advocate of peace, if we could name the conditions ourselves. But I say war to the death. I would give my life to be able to take arms against the vandals who are laying waste to our fair land. I suppose it is because I have no longer anything to lose that I am desperate. Before I always opposed the burning of Baton Rouge as a useless piece of barbarism in turning out five thousand women and children on the charity of the world, but I noticed that those who had no interest there warmly advocated it. Lily Nolan cried loudly for it, thought it only just, but the first shell that whistled over her father's house made her crazy with rage. The brutes, the beasts, how cruel, wicked, etc. It was too near home for her then. There is the greatest difference between my property and yours. I notice that the further I get from town, the more ardent are the people to have it burned. It recalls very forcibly Thackeray's cut in the Virginians when speaking of the determination of the rebels to burn the cities. He says he observed that all those who were most eager to burn New York were inhabitants of Boston, while those who were most zealous to burn Boston had all their property in New York. It is true all the world over, and I am afraid I am becoming indifferent about the fate of our town. Anything so it is speedily settled. Tell me it would be of service to the Confederacy, and I would set fire to my home, if still standing, willingly. But would it? End of Book Three, Part Two